Good afternoon, producer Susan. Staying warm? Oh, a little bit too warm for me, and it's only going to get worse this week. And how's how's your humidity? Uh, pretty miserable. It's <laughs> oppressive. Well, you know, you asked me to uh, uh, to talk about dew points and relative humidity, so that's one going to be one of our topics today. So let me give you the rundown of what I've what I'm going to try to squeeze in today. Um, anyway, today's um, July 25th, last week of July. It's the situation with Jersey Joe. It's news and perspective you won't hear on TV. Um, our quote of the week is from the late economist Frederick Hayek. Ever heard of Frederick Hayek? Hayek? I have not. Uh, he's a he's a very famous uh, economist and political philosopher. I think he passed away in 1992, but he's written several books. He's considered kind of a guru on on economics. So we'll talk about a, a quote from him. Uh, and again, our science segment, you suggested uh, that it's this hot and humid time of year that we talk about things like relative humidity, dew point, and what is wet bulb versus dry bulb. Uh, we'll also tell you about a related term you may not have heard before. It's something called transpiration, but it's relative. And we'll also tell you why the recent hot weather in Phoenix is not, quote, record setting as being reported. Um We'll also tell you about the shocking increase in the number of auto thefts in this country, and the figures might both surprise and concern you. We'll tell you why the solution to this country's power generation and distribution issue might be a nuclear reactor that can be installed in your garage or basement. How'd you like to have a nuclear reactor in your basement? If it can save me money, yeah, I'd be in favor of it. All right, we'll tell you all about that. Um, we'll tell you about a new rule by the Biden administration that will outlaw the sale of all current portable gas generators that are, are currently on the market before this time next year. You know anybody uses a portable generator? Uh, you know a lot, and I think they're really vital to people who live in uh, hurricane territory and tornado territory. Right, and if you're a farmer, you have a remote well, or if you're a building construction, we'll talk. We'll talk about all the places that portable generators are used and why outlawing them. Um, I think by February of next year is going to create all sorts of problems for for people. Um, you ever heard of the Tuskegee Airmen? I have. The World War II all African American fighter pilot squadron. Mm -hmm. You ever heard of the Black Panthers? I have. Uh, also known as Patton's Panthers. I've never heard them called Patton's Panthers. But you've heard of the Black Panthers, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll tell you about uh, who Patton's or who the Black Panthers were in World War II. They were the uh, land-based uh, equivalent of the. Uh, of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. And our taxpayer relief shot is from North Carolina where a man is awakened in the middle of the night and uh, he's got a little storage unit out in his backyard and he goes out in his backyard to confront, see who the hell's breaking into his storage unit in the middle of the night and the guy attacks him. And uh, as you can guess, it did not work out for the well for the guy uh, trying to break into his uh, storage unit in the middle of the night. So but that we might be able to fit all that in anyway. I feel like that's a light week in comparison to some of it, the. It is, it is, but have. we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the science segment because the the, the transfer dew point relative humidity is not something I can cover in sixty seconds. Anyway, here's the quote of the week from Friedrich. By the way, it's it's not Frederick, it's Friedrich Hayek, and it's spelled H A Y E K. And if you want to Google his name and just a, a bunch of quotes, and he's written some great books, but here's one of his quotes, and here's his quote. There is all the difference in the world between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. While the first is a condition of a free society, the second means 
as described by Alexander de Tocqueville, a new form of servitude. Uh, did you, you need me to read that again, or did you get it the first time? No, I got it the first time. And I agree. I agree with that. that that's, they're not the same and people need to understand that. Right. Trying to make everybody equal basically is servitude. Okay. You know, you can't succeed We're you know, you, we're going to make you identical to everybody else. You're all going to live in the same house. You're going to have the same income. That's servitude. So again, for those who didn't catch it the first time, and by the way, he quotes Alexander de Tocqueville. Do you know who he was? No. French philosopher about the time of uh, that um, the 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 U.S. The Amer America declared its independence from uh, from Great from from England. Uh, so he was, and so de, to de Tocqueville wrote quite a bit about the American independence uh, movement. But he was a uh, philosopher and political observer, Alexander de Tocqueville. So anyway, so here's that quote again, and I'll leave out de Tocqueville's name just to, to make comprehension easier. Hayek said, there is all the difference in the world between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. While the first is a condition of a free society, the second is a new form of servitude. And I couldn't agree more. Once you try to make everybody equal, you, you have to put constraints on those who would excel and rise above. So uh, I think that's a great quote, and it, it really points out the difference between capitalism and socialism and, and a merit-based society. All right. So you want to know about dew point, relative humidity, dry bulb, wet bulb. So let's talk about the yeah. easy one first. And I know you're an earth science major, so you may know a lot of this stuff, but a lot mm -hmm. of our listeners may not. So relative humidity, what does that mean? Well, it's it's the it describes how much moisture is in a cubic foot of air compared to how much moisture that cubic foot of air can hold at a given temperature. Um, so, and by the way, and warm air can hold more moisture than cold air. So you might wake up in the morning and they may say, you know, right now at 7 a.m., the relative humidity is uh, 72%. Well, as the air warms up, even though there's no change in the amount of moisture in the air, uh, if, if the amount of moisture in the air stays the same as the air gets warmer, that relative humidity will drop from 72% to 52% because the warmer air in the afternoon can hold more moisture. So let's say there were 12 grams of water in that cubic foot of air at seven o'clock in the morning. And that was 72% of what that cubic foot of air could hold. By three o'clock in the afternoon, that same cubic foot of air might be able to hold 25 grams of moisture. So even though the amount of moisture, in this case, 12 grams in that cubic foot hasn't changed because the air is hotter, the relative humidity, in other words, how much can it hold, uh, has gone down even though the amount of moisture hasn't changed. So let's talk about, by the any questions before I move on from there? Not for me, but I understand this stuff. All right. So let's talk about dew point. So let's go back to seven o'clock in the morning when it's uh 72 relative humidity at 70 degrees well if that temperature if we were to get a cold front or it, let's say it's let's say it's it's evening time and let's say at seven o'clock at night it's uh, 70 degrees outside and the relative humidity is 72 percent as the sun goes down and the temperature starts to cool the dew point is that point as the air cools where that air can no longer contain 
that that 12 grams of moisture and it starts to condense out on the leaves as we call it dew you get dew on the grass dew on the leaves that is the moisture that was being held in that 70 degree air condensing out onto leaves and grass because at 55 degrees at night when that 70 degree air cools down to 55 that 55 degree air can no longer hold all of that moisture so it condenses out and that's what we call the dew point now um when the relative humidity reaches a hundred percent you get two things typically happen one is fog right the fog is when the the air says i give up here's your moisture back the other is rain when the temperature when you get a cold front moves through and that cold front cools the air the air says i give up i can't hold this water here you can have it back and you get rain all right so now how do we measure those things you ever heard the weatherman talk about the dry bulb wet bulb yep all right so we all know what a dry bulb is you look out in your deck the thermometer boom and there's the temperature but um when the air is not at 100 percent relative humidity when water evaporates it cools things off so and let me give an example so when you go to the doctor to either give blood or or he's going to give you an inoculation they put alcohol on your arm and when they take the cotton ball away your arm feels cool well it's not because the alcohol was cold it's because the alcohol is evaporating um when a liquid evaporates goes from liquid to gas it requires the addition of heat so for that alcohol to evaporate off your arm it has to draw heat from somewhere and it draws heat from your arm here's a better example let's say you're in phoenix and it's 100 degrees and you get up now your body temperature normal body temperature is what 98.6 all right so you you got you get out of a pool in phoenix you're soaking wet Air temperature is 100, but there's a stiff breeze blowing. And all of a sudden, you get a chill. You get goosebumps. Well, how can a 100-degree breeze, if it's warmer than your body temperature, how can a 100-degree breeze uh, cool you off and give you a chill? That's the wet bulb effect. Right. That's the that's the water from the pool that's on your skin evaporating into that dry air. So is that water on your skin evaporates it's sucking heat out of your skin and that's why you can you can get goosebumps on a 100 degree day in phoenix if you're soaking wet on a dry day so here's how they actually and so the difference between those two and by the way so and when the dry bulb and the wet bulb were the same it's 100 percent relative humidity but let's say it's not 100 percent. what they literally do is they take a thermometer and they wrap a little piece of cloth or cotton around the base of the thermometer and they wet it with water Mm-hmm. And then they have this thing with a the string on. It's called a sling psychrometer, and they literally whip that thermometer around um, with the wet cloth on the end of the bulb, and they whip it around for twenty seconds. And at the end of the twenty seconds, they read the temperature. Now, if it's not a hundred percent relative humidity, the temperature on that thermometer that had the wet piece of cotton on the bottom will be colder, cooler. Mm-hmm. then then so let's say you're in your living room and the living room thermometer dry bulb says hey it's 72 in here and it's dry you know you've got the air conditioning on it's 72 but it's low humidity in your living room when you whip that thermometer with the wet piece of cotton around that wet bulb temperature in your living room might say 64 well how did it get to be 64 if the temperature is 72 the answer is the water as it evaporated off that wet piece of cotton 
um, cooled the thermometer, and that's where you get the wet bulb temperature. Now, since that wet bulb, since that evaporation is only enabled by the ability of that water to evaporate, as the humidity approaches 100%, what happens to the ability of liquids to evaporate as the humidity they approaches they just 100%? Form, they just form moisture. I'm sorry? They, they can't evaporate. They form moisture. Right. You can't, right. You can't evaporate water into hundred percent. So the higher the humidity, the closer that the dry bulb and wet bulb will be. And once you get to hundred percent relative humidity, you can whip that thermometer with the wet piece of cotton around all day long. It's not going to be any difference because there'll be no evaporation because uh, again, wet bulb is only lower than dry bulb when the water is able to evaporate. And when the water can't evaporate, that means it's 100% relative humidity. So that's the difference between wet bulb and dry bulb. So any questions or anything you want to add since you're an earth science major to wet bulb and dry bulb and relative humidity? Nope, but those of you living in the Northeast this week are going to experience some uh, hazy, hot and humid, muggy temperatures later this week. All right. Now, if we have any farmers ever, ever heard the word transpiration? I have not heard that term before. Um, well, let me ask you, it's uh, transpira transpiration is a fancy word for plant sweat. Oh. <laughs> so, so now here, let me put this in perspective. So when you have a plant and the, and the leaf on the plant withers and becomes brittle, what happened to the moisture in the, that was in the leaf? It has evaporated. It evaporated, right. It didn't go back down to the roots. It literally evaporated and the plant leaf dried out. Well, that's something that happens for a living plant. That's something that it, it happens continually. That's how a plant, particularly in warm weather, keeps itself cool. Because we just talked about how evaporation cools whatever. It'll cool your skin. It'll cool the thermometer. It'll uh, If a plant leaf, uh, has, which has liquid water, gives up that liquid water in the form of gaseous water, that transition from liquid water to gaseous water cools the leaf. And let me tell you how extreme this is. Now, one acre of corn. Now, an acre, for those who aren't don't have a good visualization, an acre is only about 200 feet by 200 feet. You know, it's it's like two-thirds of a football field. You know, it's 200 feet long, 200 feet wide. That's an acre. You want to guess how much water an acre of corn will transpire? I mean, in other words, give off in a day? Oh, I'm guessing probably a, a couple gallons. Try four thousand gallons of water wow. a day four thousand wow. gallons one cubic yard three feet by three feet of corn uh gives off a gallon so a three by three three feet by three feet of corn will give off one gallon per day now if you if you know anything about corn you know a corn plant can be eight feet tall and it's got mm -hmm. these big broad leaves and it's and those broad leaves occur three or four even sometimes five places on that stalk as the stalk goes up in the air and each one of those leaves you know has a lot of surface area so an acre of corn will transpire four thousand gallons of water wow. in a day how's that that that's a lot of water that's a lot of water so let's move on to phoenix have you heard the weather any local weather guys saying phoenix has experienced a record heat wave yeah i feel like that's a common trend to hear on the evening right. news weather now, you notice they're not saying record temperatures. They're saying heat wave, meaning prolonged period of heat. So mm -hmm. we're not talking about, you know, 
you know, how hot is the hottest temperature? They're simply saying so many days. Well, the one I saw, the Phoenix has had more than 50 days of daily temperatures in excess of 100 degrees so far this summer. Well, is that a, is that a heat wave? Now, do you know what the NOAA is? Yes, it's the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric, Atmospheric Association. So, right. The federal government. That's the official record keeping people. So is more than 50 days of daily temperatures in excess of 100 degrees. Is that a record for Phoenix? Well, if we look at that Phoenix data since 1905, they have records going back to 1905, which is 118 years. Right now, uh, well, first of all, Phoenix always, there's not been a single year where Phoenix hasn't had some days above 100 um more than a dozen in for the past so where does the current run of 58 days above 100 for 2023 currently sit uh relative to those 118 other years you want to you want to guess where those 58 it's days probably are? i feel like that might be average well i'm just saying that if we if we look at the full year now the summer's not over yet but if we just say hey if, if it stopped tomorrow where would those 58 days put it out of those 118 years? What place would those 58 days put it? I, I think the... it would be pretty average. I, I'm thinking, you know, June and July, August are the hottest months of the year. And we're right. at the end of July. So that's 60 days of, okay. yeah, I think that's average. Well, yeah. And right now, by the way, if, if it stopped and there were no more 100 days, it would come in at 112th place out of 118, not even in the top 50%. Now, it's true. Summer's not over. But even if the daily temperature in Phoenix went above 100 every day for the remainder of July, we have six days left in July, mm -hmm. and there's 31 days in August, which is 47 additional days, for a total of 104 days with temperatures above 100, where would that place 2023 on the list? It would be tied for 47th place with three other years that also had 104 days of temperatures in excess of 100. Um, and what were some of the other years that would place above 2023 on that list? How about 1910, when Phoenix had a 121 days of temperatures above 100, 121 days of temperatures above 100 degrees in 1910s. How many cars were on the road back in 1910? None. How many coal-fired central power plants do you think there were in the United States in 1910? None. So... So here we have 1910 when there were no coal-fired power plants. We had no, we didn't have 13 million, I'm sorry, we didn't have 130 million vehicles on the road. China, you know, you, you know, there were no, not just in the United States, we didn't have cars in Europe, we didn't have cars in China, we didn't have cars in India. Yet 1910, we had 121 days of above 100. Now, I said if Phoenix continued to have days above 100 for every day between now and the end of August, they would come in at 47th place. But how likely is that to actually happen? Are you familiar with the monsoon rainy season? Yes. Well, guess what? You know what? Phoenix has just entered their mon annual monsoon rainy yep, season. August. Yep. Right. So is it is it likely that Phoenix, that every day in August is going to be 100 degrees in Phoenix? Probably not because the rain's going to cool. As we just talked about wet bulb, the, the rain's going to cool right and the, clouds, and, the, and the clouds are going to impede the the, the, mm -hmm. the radiant warming of the sun so um unless there's no rain in phoenix this year um phoenix is going to as you said it's probably going to be a pretty average year for phoenix so um anyway so if, if and I, i'm gonna if 
if uh, anybody wants, uh, we can producer Susan can put this NOA NOAA record data in the in the show notes. Uh, so if you have a weatherman, your local weatherman saying it's a record setting heat wave in Phoenix, you ought to send him this NOAA data that shows no, it isn't. All right. Um, how's uh, any any uh, car theft news out by where you live? Uh, we're, we're fortunate. Not a lot of car thefts, although uh, in some particular neighborhoods, uh, catalytic converters are the hot ticket item. Yeah, that's that's everywhere. Well, in addition to catalytic converters, since 2019, since the first six months of 2019, if you compared the number of car thefts, cars stolen in the first six months of 2023 to 2019, what do you think the increase has been in percentage from, basis? From what, from what year? 2019, first six months of 19 to the first six months of 23. I think it was pretty high because I think there's a couple of car companies out there that uh, had a flaw in their in their ignition uh, key fob. Well, that made it easier. But again, just because it's easier to steal something, you, you, I, I know a lot of uh, politicians are trying to hang that on that, but <laughs> the data really doesn't support it because the increase has been 104%. And just because it's easier to steal a Hyundai or a, or a Kia, doesn't account for literally a more than doubling of the number of car thefts. In fact, since last year to this year, and last year, by the way, those same cars with that same ignition flaw were on the road last year, the increase from just last year to this year is 34%. So that would kind of uh, shoot holes in the fact, well, it's because of these cars you usually steal. Well, they, they were just as easy to steal last year as they are this year. So that doesn't explain why there's been a 34% increase. I in feel like theft. not just cars. I feel like just crime in general is, is up across the nation. I don't know if it was the pandemic or the economy or what is going on with our world today, but crime well, in a lot of places like, like Denver, they've actually made it no longer a felony to steal a car. And in particular, what the car thieves are doing now, they now know if you're a minor under 18, they're not going to prosecute you as a felon. So what they're doing now is they're sending these, they're, they're literally recruiting the 16 and 17 year old kids to go out and steal the cars. Uh, and in fact, didn't we have a taxpayer relief shot about four or five months yeah. ago where 12 year old yeah. kids stole the car and, and died? Yeah. 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 So they're literally recruiting. So a lot of it has to do, not all of it, but I think a lot of it has to do with our uh, criminal justice system where politicians are saying, yeah, we don't think, you know, if you're 16 years old and steal a car, we don't think you should have a felony on your record. Well, the thieves are have jumped all over that, and it's become a lucrative business for kids uh, stealing cars. And I mean, they're literally part of organized rings where they because they know, hey, even if I get caught, I basically get the equivalent of a ticket. I'll be brought in, I'll be booked, I'll be handed an appearance ticket, and I won't even spend the night in jail. I can steal a car, and I won't even spend the night in jail. So when you look at risk reward, the reward is because you're going to take that car to a chop shop and they're going to hand you a thousand dollars in cash. So the risk is if I can steal four cars in a night at a thousand bucks a piece, and even if I get caught, I'm going to I'm going to be handed a ticket and a notice to appear. Wouldn't you continue to steal cars? Yeah, absolutely. So all right. and I, I think this goes back to um, some other conversations we've had in past shows about the the family dynamics and dads in the house. There was a coworker of mine, his teenage son got into mischief with, with his car and the, the police were called and it wasn't theft or anything, but mis teenage mischief, wholesome teenage mischief, if there is such a thing. And the dad's response was, how can we scare the bejesus out of this, out of my <laughs> son? 
because the, he, the dad wants to teach the son a lesson. And I think that this is what we're missing in America today. Yep. Um, and by the way, when I was a teenager, and I've talked about this fact because every teenager, you know, up in upstate New York, every teenager had access to a loaded rifle. You know, after dinner, we'd go yeah. shooting. There wasn't a single teenager that didn't have access to a loaded rifle, yet we didn't have school shootings. Well, what was different then? Um, well, number one, they all had fathers. And two, you'd see every one of them in church on Sunday morning. Uh, today yeah. and, and this is a church going family and dad is in the household and the dad's first response is to the cop is how can you scare the bejesus out of my son so we can teach him a lesson yep so again fathers are important and, and having some moral compass is important too and unfortunately we have too many kids today growing up uh without with no with no father in the home and uh i know church attendance by teenagers has fallen off i think is down in the 20 percent range these days so it's just really really sad and this is a generation too you said no fathers in the home there this is a generation too where there's there's oftentimes not even mothers in the home where the the child is being raised by grandparents or other yes. family members and, and that's um, unfortunately very very true um yeah, and 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 um uh, in the worst cases you know the mother is you know a, a crack addict or something and she's either in jail or she's in rehab somewhere so yes Grandma is raising the kid. No father, no mother. It, it's so sad. All right. You want to add anything more? Or should we move on to the no, next? No, we can, we can move on to the next topic. You got about 10 minutes left. All right. Um, well, you know, we, there's all the problem about, you know, the about the grid and the grid is being electrical district being stressed and, you know, yep. it's at its breaking point. Well, currently due to uh, losses at the generating plant, only 55% of the energy in a cubic foot of natural gas per pound of coal actually makes it to the wall socket in your home. The rest is given off as, as either waste heat at the power, uh, waste heat in the plant, it's called stack losses, or by the power transmission lines themselves, electrical substation, and even the transformers on their pole. Um, and, and here we are talking about adding, we wanna add electric vehicles, we wanna replace gas stoves with electric stoves, we wanna replace gas water heaters with, with electric water heaters, um, the grid cannot handle that much electrical, additional electrical demand. We've talked about this, and it would cost trillions of dollars and decades to upgrade, you know, all of those transmission lines to carry that, to carry the heat. So even if you blanketed the United States with wind turbines and uh, solar farms, we don't have the transmission, the grid to distribute that power. Uh, and again, it's a shame. And even with a wind turbine or solar, you're still losing power to the line. It's called line losses. Every wire has resistance and the resistance in the wire generates heat and that's wasted electric, that's wasted energy being given off to the atmosphere. So imagine if you had a little mini nuclear power plant in your home or maybe for your community. That way you wouldn't have to rely on high tension lines that are going hundreds of miles. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, even when you have a nuclear, even when you have a power plant in, in the middle of a state, if you've got 60 miles of line transmission lines going east and 60 miles going north and 70 miles going south, you've got several hundred miles of high tension transmission lines. Well, imagine if you had a nuclear power plant in your basement or you had one in your neighborhood. Uh, that would do away, number one, we wouldn't have to upgrade the grid. And two, we wouldn't be wasting all that energy to line losses because it wouldn't be that electricity wouldn't have to travel. Well, People said, yeah, that's a nice dream. Well, guess what? It's not a dream. NASA has developed a nuclear reactor the size of a roll of a paper paper towel roll. 
literally it's as big as a roll of paper towels now to shield it and have all the safety and and you know uh, radiation protection they encase it in a container about the size of a trash can mm -hmm. but it's a real thing they're going to put these on uh spacecraft like for the mars rover so when they're putting these uh when they want to send a spacecraft to uh to mars it's going to be powered by a nuclear reactor the size of a garbage can uh so that technology is real it's here now is it going to be in your house next week no but in 20 years i don't see why not and yeah, think so, i mean that that's i feel like that's a reasonable size to have in your basement or garage or whatever so yeah i guess my question is of of like is it you know cost effective obviously for things like the space shuttle you know that's expensive but for the average homeowner is this going to be realistic no it may not be but that's where you know by the way every town i'm i'm sure have you do you know where the substation is in your town i do yes yeah and every town has one you know it's a, it's it's where the 50,000 volt electricity that's coming through those high voltage mm -hmm. transmission lines is is dropped down into mm -hmm. a uh, little area of cyclone fences maybe you know 100 feet by 100 feet and you look and you've got all these transformers that's where that 50,000 volt electricity from the high voltage transmission lines is stepped down to something more usable like 460 volt and then redistributed to your neighborhood. Well, imagine instead of that substation, you had a, uh, a tractor trailer sized nuclear power plant for the neighborhood, yeah. um, you know, which could be maintained and monitored and would supply power. Again, you are no longer dependent on upon a central power plant and you no longer need cross country high, tra high voltage transmission lines. So, so that's, I think that's- a, We have a phenomenon that happens in my neighborhood. Uh, this happens at least once a week in the summertime, if not twice a week. I lose power at least once a week in the summertime. And now it only goes off for a minute, but do you know why? I live in a very suburban neighborhood. Do you know why my power goes off at least once a week every morning? I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue, but you could actually call and, and ask, by the way. Well, I, I think it's the squirrels. I think it's the squirrels playing. Right. With the. I think the reason why this may not happen in the winter is because there's the, the leaves are not touching the power lines and the squirrels are, you know, because like a, like a bird, a squirrel can sit on a power line. Sure. But it, I think it, it has to do with the greenery that might also be touching the power line and the squirrels are getting electrocuted. <laughs> It could because be. We, we lose power just for it's a bump and it happens at least once a week if not twice a week and it only happens in the like june and july uh, <laughs> when wildlife is at its most active all right <laughs> by the way i've just made an executive decision we're not gonna have time to get to the taxpayer leash out i want to do two things though um consumer protection state here's where the executive branch can bypass congress the consumer protection safety council cpsc you've heard of them right mm-hmm mm -hmm. They've announced new, quote, safety regs. These are the people that, you know, ban car, you know, travel car seats for not being safe. They've determined that, quote, portable gas generators emit unhealthy levels of carbon monoxide and represent a danger to the public. So they're going to ban their sale by February 1st of next year. Now, let's talk about where portable gas generators are used and how essential they are. During the early phases of new home construction, when there is no electricity, because you have, all you have is an empty lot in the middle of a field, portable generators provide the power for the saws, the lights, the cooling fans, and the air compressors that power all the nail guns. During the winter months, they also provide the power to, 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 mm -hmm. to, to the torpedo-style space heaters that keep the workers warm. 
On commercial steel built on commercial steel building sites, they provide the power to the welding machines. On a farm, they provide the power, particularly out in the West. What they do is they'll drill a they'll drill a well out in the middle of a field, but you're you're a mile from the nearest telephone pole. And what they do is they'll run out there with a flatbed truck, and they'll hook up the the generator on the back of the flatbed truck to the pump, and they'll pump you know they'll pump up a, a 500 gallon uh, tank full of water using the portable generator to power the well pump and then they'll disconnect and leave and two days later they'll come back and do the same thing again if you've got a portable hay elevator at a, at a remote at a barn in a in a rope in the middle of a hay field you'll power that hay elevator with a portable generator um you also use it to power welding machines to repair farm machinery if you get a, if you break down a piece of machinery in the middle of a farm and you can't bring it back because maybe the hitch is broke in the middle of a field you bring the welding machine to the machinery in the middle of the field mm -hmm. and you weld it in the field um so that's where they're used anyway so the biden administration has decided that uh now by the they're not saying that you can't ever have them. they're just saying none of the ones currently being made meet our standards so all of you guys who are making them in six months you have to come up with a whole next generation of uh of uh Portable generators. Well, guess what? You cannot design, test, tool up, and produce a next generation of portable welding machines in six months. Not possible. Did we just run out of time? No, we've got time to no, go. No, uh, but I, there must have been a bad connection for a minute there. All right. Anyway, I, I think for our average listener, though, you know, we talked about tornadoes and, and hurricanes, but in winter, uh, snowstorms, when people lose electricity, I can't tell you how many of my friends and family have these portable generators yep. just to get through a, a horrific storm. That is and, pretty common. And if you go camping, a lot of these people who want to go camping where there's not a hookup, they have a portable generator to power their campsite. Mm -hmm. Anyway, before we run out of time, I don't want to give this short shrift. The Black Panthers, also known as Patton's Panthers after General George Patton. Mm -hmm. In World War II, the 761st Tank Battalion was, was staffed and manned entirely by African-American soldiers. And they were a fierce force. Now we've all heard about the Tuskegee Airmen. Well, the Black mm -hmm. Panthers were the tank battalion equivalent of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, what's interesting in August on the History Channel, Morgan Freeman is going to narrate a uh, a special on the 761st Tank Battalion. So if you're interested in learning about the Black Panthers, don't miss the Morgan Freeman special on the Black Panthers. And what day and time was that again? I, I don't know the exact day. I know right. it's in August, but just check the History Channel. Yeah. Uh, Black Panthers. How much time do we have? Uh, you have about three minutes. All right. Let me just play the North Carolina taxpayer relief shot without any intro. Again, guy wakes up in the middle of the night, goes out, confronts a guy in the middle of his yard who attacks him. It's a really quick one. Here we go. In Salem, a man is dead after he was shot while breaking into a storage building. Police say early this morning, two people woke up to Christopher Pache breaking into the building at their home on White Rock Road. We're told one of them confronted the man and during that confrontation fired a gun. Pache was hit and later died. Police say the homeowners will not be charged in this case. So dead right there and the homeowners will not be charged. There's a longer version I didn't play where... He confronted the guy and then the guy attacked him. Mm -hmm. um, but again, a classic taxpayer relief shot. Classic uh, self-defense. Self-defense. Homeowners not charged. Anyway, we're running out of time. So I want to thank uh, producer Susan. Anything you want to add? 
No, stay cool this week. It's the temperatures are going to be deadly this week on the north. All right. Well, stay cool. Uh, watch that wet bulb, and I'll talk to you next week. Take All care. right. All right. Bye bye, Sue. Here we go, and we are done.